Hello and welcome to the i3 Insights podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. As you probably know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. The following recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to the i3 Investment Podcast. This is Daniel Grioli, Market Fox Editor. And with me today, I have probably the guest that I am most jealous of. He's young, he's smart, and he writes some fantastic research that I wish I would have written myself. You may not have heard of him in the Asia-Pacific region, but he's all over uh, social media and the web with the great research that he and his team produce. His name is Corey Hofstein. His business is Newfound, based in Boston. Corey, welcome to the podcast. Daniel, it's uh, a pleasure to be here. And, and right out of the gate, I'm going to hijack your podcast from you and just say that I had the chance to listen to your podcast that you did with Jim O'Shaughnessy. And if any listeners to this have not heard that yet, they should throw this on pause and go listen because it was just an absolutely fantastic conversation. Uh, kudos to you for leading the conversation in such a great way. But Jim is just such a fountain of wisdom and has just a real gift to take all the cumulative experience he has and dilute it into really approachable sound bites. It's just uh, an absolutely phenomenal podcast. Well, thanks for that praise. Um, I, I don't deserve it. Jim is the one that deserves it. And you're absolutely right that he is uh, very generous by nature. And I think that comes through in the way he explains things genuinely wants to help everybody understand uh, what what he's learned through hard-won experience. So it was great to talk Absolutely. to I was I was having a conversation with another quant the other day, and we were talking about how Jim would be on the Mount Rushmore of, of quants to think, to go back and say that he worked and did all this research back in the early 90s and then was transparent enough to publish a book about everything he discovered instead of just hoarding the knowledge to himself still developed a fantastic business around it uh, really just a thought leader in the space and has done so much to promote the growth of quantitative strategies we really all owe quite a bit to him definitely definitely so who else would you put up on the mount rushmore of quant and would you put oh. asness next to rob arnett or would they just be fighting I think you got to put them together. I, I love their battles. Honestly, I think it's great. It's both entertaining and uh, and it gives you food for thought to, to have industry titans, two guys who have worked together in the past doing research, who own two incredibly well-respected firms and disagree to such a large extent on certain topics. It should make most of us step back and, and really ask ourselves fundamentally what do we really know and believe at the end of the day when you can have two people looking at the same data drawing such different conclusions from it and in these different areas i think it's um again you, you can't knock either one of them for the impact and the research they've had in this space and they certainly both deserve to be out up there on mount rushmore 
Any any other members that you oh, have I in think, the collection? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a whole list of people. If you go back to the the early days um, and just talk about some of the fundamental equations that we take for granted now in portfolio construction, you know, even just to go back to someone like Markowitz and that and Sharp and the people who really led the way in modern portfolio theory. They, it's a very simple concept now, but prior to that, there was really no quantification of the concept of diversification. And modern portfolio theory, with all its flaws, and, and we can get into that, uh, but ignoring all the flaws really took investment management a step forward into a realm of statistics and mathematics by giving us a way to think about quantifying some of these more elusive concepts. So, I think people like that need to be up there. I think if you look at uh, Fisher Black, uh, Merton Scholes certainly deserve to be up there for their work in options derivative theory. I think there's a large number of people who, you know, in the derivative calculus space certainly deserve to be up there. So it would be it would be a scattershot. I mean, I think the to say the quant Mount Rushmore, quant is such a large, large space, it would be hard to really just pick a few. Definitely. I would even like to see Ben Graham up there because he was actually a lot more quantitative than people realize. He ran fairly broad I, portfolios and he used a lot of uh, metric screening to construct them. I'm absolutely embarrassed I didn't say Benjamin Graham because you are absolutely right. Well, most people think of him as a fundamental guy, but uh, I guess it shows, um, and this is probably similar to the way I think, that sometimes the best investors borrow from different fields. And they're hard to pigeonhole because they they create interesting hybrids. Very much the Charlie Munger's mental models concept, right? That if you are able to pick and choose from different fields, it helps you triangulate the truth through different lenses. Absolutely. So interesting to talk about the quant Mount Rushmore. But let's find out a little bit about you. How did you get started in finance? I actually, from a very young age, thought I was going to program video games for a living, which is probably for any any younger person, one of those dream careers when you're, you know, probably around 12, 13. But I had the good fortune very early on of, with that passion, with that thought I would program video games for a living, that I taught myself how to program. So when I was 12 or 13, I taught myself QBasic eventually taught myself C and C++, and at this point, know a variety of languages, but really thought I would have this career in computer programming. I went to college uh, undergraduate with the plan of studying computer science, and within probably the first month of being there, realized I, I was not going to do well in a career that I was going to be chained to my desk programming all day. That while I loved, absolutely adore programming, I think it's, for those who have never done it, it can be a tremendous expression, uh, an art form in and of itself. I'm really that passionate about it. But I realized that my career was certainly not going to be one that I could just sit at a table. So through some exploration, I got interested in the field of finance. And uh, I was actually through my father's financial advisor that I ended up being introduced to a local portfolio manager uh, when I was a sophomore in college who was managing portfolios on a discretionary basis, managed them 
picking individual securities in the dividend growers universe and was looking for a way to take a lot of what he understood fundamentally and turning it into a quantitative screen that would help him filter his universe, which pre-2008 crisis was 400 plus securities, and turn it into a list of, call it, 50 or 60 securities that he could then do a more qualitative deep dive on. And so that's really where I got my first introduction to marrying my computer science and programming background with finance in realizing that I could look through all this historical data incredibly efficiently using my programming skills and start trying to identify relationships between company fundamentals and future performance. And that really kicked off for me a passion of quantitative finance. Okay. So what was next? You've, you've had a taste for it. Where to after that? So I really had, so the summer of 2007, I really had two what I'll call catalyst moments that kicked my career into, into high drive. And there were really two experiences that were somewhat independent of each other, but ended up leading me in the same direction. The first was in working on this system, this security stock screening system, all I had really done in retrospect was rediscovered value and quality. I think that's sort of a, a truth I find a lot with young quants who come into the space that are exploring the data for their first time, very often they stumble across value and quality. They come out of the data in so many different ways. So all I had done is rediscovered value and quality. But what had happened is in, in applying that screen going forward, we ended up selecting through that very naive screen of value and quality, ended up very, very heavily ranking financial securities. Uh, because they kept selling off, they kept selling off, the fundamentals weren't quick enough to update to what the market knew, and we had this ranking system that in 2007 was effectively buying these falling knives. Uh, and that was a real, on the one hand, wake-up call to me that either you had to be willing to sit through a lot of pain of being wrong, or you had to think about another way of managing risk, potentially. And ideally, a way that was somewhat independent of the first system you had designed. The second sort of catalyst for me that occurred was actually a meeting I had that summer. One of the, the things I was doing that summer in a, in a summer internship was working with my father's financial advisor. When portfolio managers would come in to meet with him, I would sit in the meeting and take notes and if there were some more quantitative-oriented managers, I, I might chime up a bit. But there was one deep small-cap value manager meeting that I, I will never forget. It was summer 2007. This was a portfolio manager who came into the office. And before the meeting kicked off, I was sitting alone with this manager. And just to sort of eat up a bit of time before the conversation began, I asked him what he thought of the market. And he gave me the most bearish prognostication I had ever heard at that point in my young career about how we were headed for a tremendous recession, if not outright depression, and that he thought he had a very bearish outlook for the performance of equities going forward over the next 12 to 24 months. 
which again, summer 2007, financials had started to show some weakness. But I don't. I think there were very few people who were really truly fully aware of, of what would unfold in the credit crisis. And so it took me aback, and I asked him what he planned to do in his portfolio because of this outlook. And he more or less said nothing different, that by mandate, he had to be 95% invested at all times, and that he ultimately was hired by people to provide the best small cap value exposure he could, and he was going to try to continue to do that. And that ultimately, by running a mutual fund, he didn't know the end investors who, who were allocating to him, and that it was really up to the financial advisor to determine whether small cap value was the appropriate risk profile for the individual investor who was allocating. And all of that made sense to me. But after the meeting, I asked the same question. I relayed that information to my father's financial advisor, asked him what he thought about that conversation. And he said, how in the world am I supposed to know when the risk is right for my clients to be in small cap value or not? That's why I hire an expert. If he doesn't like the outlook in small cap value, he should be managing the risk. And what I really saw was two people ultimately pointing the finger at each other as to who should be managing client risk, and in my mind, risk being here, the preservation of capital. And that really spun me out on a trajectory of risk-first asset, risk asset management, where the primary focus is not trying to outperform the market, but your first objective is always trying to focus on preserving capital. And that was really the catalyst. That conversation and my experience of buying these falling knife stocks uh, that were just really, really painful to hold. Both those together for me uh, really lit a spark as to how I wanted to focus my career in finance. That's a, that's a great story. And sounds to me like they were managing risk. They were just managing their own risk, not necessarily the clients. Because the, uh, the fund manager that you mentioned was sticking to his mandate. So he can always say, well, you hired me to do this and I did that. And the advisor can say, well, I'm sticking to the 70-30 or 60-40 or whatever allocation we came up with based on your risk profile, which is what we agreed, and uh, both get to pass the buck. It's a pattern that seems to get repeated over and over and over again in our industry, sadly. But uh, interesting to hear that it prompted you to do something about it. Yeah, you know, 10 years later, it's funny. At the time, to me, it struck me as such an obvious problem but 10 years later, maybe just with a little touch of, of wisdom of age and experience, I do see that there is no easy solution necessarily, that both portfolio manager and financial advisor really only have half the information they need to make these decisions. Portfolio manager doesn't ultimately know who is investing. There may be someone allocating for whom they want to take that constant small cap value risk and to allocate away from small cap value uh, would really ruin the rest of their financial picture. And from the advisor's perspective, you know, again, they, they aren't experts in these different esoteric asset classes. And so they do need to rely on the PMs who are experts. And so it isn't this very obvious, oh, one of them should be doing it. They're both passing the buck. They're, they're both limited in the information that they're provided. 
And so in my opinion, it simply required someone planting a flag in the ground and saying, I'm going to manage risk. And if that's not appealing to you as an investor, if you don't want me to actively manage that risk for you, then this might not be the strategy that's appropriate for you. I think that's a fair answer. I guess, as you point out, there is an asymmetry in information between uh, all the different parts of the of the equation between or the chain between client and the the assets and uh, reminds me of a really great paper by Charlie Ellis called Murder on the Orient Express that explains why investors often get disappointing result because just just like the Agatha Christie novel um, everybody's the murderer <laughs> a, I haven't I don't think I've read that paper I'll have to look it up it's a great paper. He talks about the role of boards and the role of consultants and fund managers and how, as you point out, nobody's act actively setting out to do the wrong thing, but they're all managing a piece with less than perfect information. And when you put that together, the, the influences of that make it very hard to get a good overall result. The ex-head of risk at AQR, a gentleman named Aaron Brown, wrote a book called Red-Blooded Risk. And, and in the book, he talks about one of the, I'm going to paraphrase and, and get the quote incorrect, but he effectively says that catastrophe rarely happens because of one big risk, that it's often the compounding of tiny errors that ultimately leads to catastrophe. And I, I think you potentially see that a lot in this industry where there are so many people touching and making decisions along the way that lots of tiny errors have the opportunity to compound in a large way. Absolutely. Lots of snowballing happening. So you've, you've decided to do something about managing risk and your business is to be an ETF strategist. So tell us a little bit about what is an ETF strategist and how do you manage risk? So an ETF strategist is a name given to a firm. And this moniker was really applied sort of 2010, 2011. It became very popular here in the States. But it's applied to firms that predominantly manage portfolios based on ETFs. So typically, it's your portfolio has to be at least 50% comprised of exchange-traded funds for you to be considered uh, an ETF strategist. And ultimately, for most ETF strategists, ETFs are really just the efficient vehicle for them to implement tactical views, active views that they're taking um, very often at the above the security selection level. So if you think of the different ways in which you can apply a view in the market, Traditionally, at, at the very bottom level, you have security selection where you're picking individual stocks or individual bonds. You can then go up a level and think about allocating to different sectors. So not differentiating in the stocks you pick, but perhaps allocating to financials over energy or corporate bonds over treasuries. You can then go up another level and think about geography. Well, maybe I'm going to buy the U.S. energy sector and sell the European energy sector. And then you can go up another level entirely and think from an asset class perspective. And so most ETF strategists tend to play at the level above the security selection at that sector 
geography, asset allocation, and implement their active views at those levels. And ETFs end up being incredibly efficient vehicles for expressing those views. Okay. So you're looking at sector, market, uh, perhaps region, maybe style, those, those larger, broader bets and implementing with ETFs. How do you manage risk? How do you provide that missing piece that you realized back in the summer of 2007 people weren't looking at? Managing risk can come around in a lot of ways. For us, risk management really means the mitigation of drawdown. And maybe I'll just back up a second and say why I think that's so important. Our industry has a real, for lack of a better word, fetish with this idea of alpha, trying to outperform the market. But the reality is for most individual investors, when they build a financial plan, either by themselves or with a financial advisor, they're not relying on alpha to meet their financial goals. I would argue it's almost irresponsible to assume you're going to outperform the market. And so if you earn alpha, that's great. It's gravy on top of what you're earning. But financial plans typically only look at the beta, sort of what are you going to get from traditional stocks and bonds and asset allocation over time. That said, if you look at the risks that really impact investors, one of the biggest risks that impacts pre-retirees and early retirees is this idea of sequence risk. Now, we're taught in traditional finance that the order of returns doesn't really matter. If you take a dollar and grow it by 5% one year and 4% the next year, well, it's the same as taking that same dollar and growing it by 4% the first year and 5% the next year. It's just the law of mathematics and, and how compounding works. But that's not true when you start withdrawing money. In fact, what you see is that in those years right before retirement and right after retirement, when you really exhausted your human capital and now are relying entirely on your investment capital, large drawdowns can have a massive and permanent impact on the lifestyle you can lead in retirement. And so for us, focusing on drawdown management and making sure that we try to design portfolios that are not going to have significant and extended drawdowns can really help maximize uh, people's success opportunity and, and uh, the amount of money that they can rely upon in their retirement. So how do we go about doing that? Well, what's really fascinating is a lot of the same quantitative approaches that get used at the security selection level, so the traditional sort of big styles is what they're called, are value, momentum, carry, defensive, or in defensive, I'd say you've got quality and low volatility, and then trend. All of those styles have also been demonstrated to have extreme, not extreme, I don't want to use the word extreme, have been demonstrated to have uh, really robust success at the higher levels of the pyramid as well, the sector, at the, at the geography, at the asset class level. And what we find is that the application of those styles, depending on your objective, can again help you try to manage risk. Predominantly, what we find really focusing on trend following 
is one that tends to have a really rich history of success in managing drawdown risk. A little, little bit on the defensive side where you're incorporating quality and low volatility tilts. Those tend to be the two styles that we think can help make the biggest difference in risk management. Things like momentum and value and carry, on the other hand, tend to be a little more alpha-oriented. And that's not to say we won't use them. We might incorporate them in the pursuit of some excess return. But for those mandates where we really are focused on risk management, trend following is one of the biggest tools we use. Okay. I hear trend following, and many people would hear market timing. Isn't that just a fancy name for market timing? And if so... If it is just market timing, um, why is that okay? Because many people think market timing has a bad name. So I think it depends who you talk to. Market timing definitely has a bad reputation because it is incredibly difficult. I tend to draw the line with market timing as someone trying to predict what the future is going to be. That prior to any substantial evidence, they are saying... I believe at this point today the market is going to fall 50% and predict. Our approach that we utilize with trend following simply says, based on the current information we have, we are our models indicate that the market is either in a positive trend or a negative trend, and we think that that trend will continue to persist over the short term. So no prediction as to how long it'll persist, but we think that if we're looking at this sort of intermediate term trend, call it 9, 12, 16 months of, of historical data, we think that's useful in forecasting the return out over the next month. And historically, uh, it has been incredibly useful. And so you have to keep updating the information you use, and the market is always bound to change on a dime. But evidence suggests that if you apply this approach systematically and without fail, it does tend to give you an edge in terms of, if you want to call it, timing the market, telling you perhaps whether you should have exposure or decrease your exposure. Now, that all said, I have a a philosophy that I quote, time and time again, which is that risk cannot be destroyed, it can only be transformed. And I thoroughly believe that if you take your exposure, say, to the market and you apply a trend-following approach, I believe there's sufficient empirical evidence to suggest that trend-following can really help you cut out those really nasty negative left tails, those long and deep prolonged drawdowns, But the sacrifice is that you tend to also give up the best years. Because what you see in the market is when the market sells off a whole lot, it tends to rebound shortly thereafter. So you get really negative years followed by really positive years and vice versa. And because trend following is always going to be late to the party, it's going to wait for a trend to emerge either negatively or positively, you end up in a scenario where when you look at what a trend following system does, It often cuts off those left tails, but it also gives up those best years. So really what you're doing with trend following is you're, in a way, transforming the underlying distribution of returns of whatever asset class you're running it on. But it's by no means free. It's not a free lunch. There might be a subtle edge to it. But we like this phrase, risk can't be destroyed, only transformed. 
to really highlight the fact that you know trend following and, and you know, if you want to call it market timing, market timing in general is incredibly, incredibly difficult. By no means will be successful every time, uh, and and requires a lot of thoughtfulness before incorporating in a portfolio. There's some interesting ideas in that response that I'd like to unpack a little bit. The first one is this idea about risk being transformed rather than eliminated. Reminds me a little bit about of, of energy in physics. The idea that uh, energy gets transformed from uh, different types, and it's it's very true. Uh, you, you see that all the time. Uh, people uh, try to avoid one risk by taking on another risk, um, sometimes consciously, sometimes subconsciously. But this this idea of trend following to reduce risk. Uh, to me highlights the importance of making the right kind of comparisons. And I know this is something that you've written about and your team have written about, because as you quite rightly point out, there's a cost to trying to avoid the worst of the market. And so comparing a trend following strategy to a buy and hold strategy may not necessarily be the right way to judge what trend following does. Tell us a little bit about what you think is a more suitable comparison and how people can set reasonable expectations uh, for a trend-following strategy. I think the simplest way to start off is maybe just by way of example. So here in the U.S., we'll, we'll use the broad market index, the S&P 500, as our benchmark and assume that we're going to apply a trend-following approach on that. So when we see a positive trend, we'll invest in the S&P 500. And when we see a negative trend, we'll invest in something like short-term treasuries, uh, sort of trying to capture that risk-free rate and just go to a neutral zero correlation asset. If we take that strategy and compare it to the S&P 500 as a benchmark, what that means is that trend following can only add value when the market goes down. So if the market goes up and we have a positive trend, and our benchmark is the market, all we've done is met expectations. When the market goes down, and if we're able to get out of the way, then people will say we've met our objective. But if we don't get out of the way, then obviously investors will be disappointed. But then there's going to be these other years where by systematically applying trend following, we're going to get what's called whipsawed, which is we see a signal change. We think maybe the market's selling off. We divest from the market. It's a head fake. The market rallies. We end up selling low and buying high. And you have this, what's called a whipsaw effect, and you end up lagging the market a bit. And to us, the way we think about that is that's almost the premium you pay for that risk management insurance you're trying to create by using a trend following strategy. So in many ways, a trend following strategy looks a lot like buying the market and and paying an insurance premium along the way. Unfortunately, that insurance premium is not consistent over time. It's very lumpy. There's some years where it's very easy to follow the trend, like 2013 when the market was up 30%, very easy year. 2017, another very easy year. And then conversely, years like 2011, 2015, where the market ends up getting whipsawed and rebounding, well, those years you end up paying a very heavy premium. 
I often say to investors, though, who are using that as their benchmark, using the market as their benchmark, who are upset that they're lagging the market, well, are you upset that you're buying fire insurance for your home and your home hasn't burned down? Because arguably you're giving up some some returns that you could have in real estate by paying this premium to insure your house. And that's really the same sort of mentality you want to have. I would argue that a much, much, much better benchmark for investors to think about trend following is a strategy that's closer to a 50-50 portfolio. 50% S&P 500 and 50% short-term treasuries. And the reason I like that benchmark is because it allows the strategy to have credit for market exposure on the upside when it's making the call to be in a positive trend, but it's also a harder bogey on the downside that you need more accurate calls in terms of protection on the downside. And I think it also highlights for investors a more appropriate way to use trend following, that if they use trend following as a replacement to their equity exposure, then they should really expect in the vast majority of years to get sort of equity minus returns, that they're going to underperform very consistently, except in those 2008 or early 2000 type environments. On the other hand, if they use that 50-50 benchmark and they're willing to take a little bit of their bond exposure and a little bit of their equity exposure and replace it with a trend-following program, what that does is it allows the entire portfolio to shift up and down the risk spectrum so that in a market that is up, but the trend following program gets slightly whipsawed, as long as the, the trend following program outperforms that 50-50 benchmark, it has increased the overall return profile of the portfolio despite underperforming that equity benchmark. And so that 50-50 mix, I think, is a lot more appropriate, sets much better long-term expectations, and I think highlights the fact that if you're going to use something for a risk management purpose, you should be comparing it to the other ways in which you can manage risk. That's an excellent point. And your discussion there about uh, using trend to manage risk and benchmarking off a, a 50-50 bogey reminds me of another paper that you wrote recently, which when I saw that paper, I thought you have almost taken the words out of my mouth uh, in that I wanted to write something similar and you beat me to it. And that was that perhaps one of the most interesting applications of trend is in a post-retirement portfolio because typically investors have relied on fixed income in instruments uh, to diversify risk uh, as they get older. But given that people are now living longer, uh, you know, it's quite possible that people uh, working today might live well into their 90s or, or beyond, or at least one person in the average couple will live that long. And returns are lower, and fixed income returns uh, look particularly problematic given where valuations are. Uh, maybe people need to look at other ways to manage risk. And in that context, comparing uh, a portfolio that has a higher weight to equities but a trend-following element to manage risk uh, to 
a more conservative portfolio that's heavy with overpriced bonds um, might be a more interesting application of trend rather than trying to beat a 100% long equity portfolio. Perhaps you can take us through uh, some of the learnings from your paper. Absolutely. And, and it's interesting you mentioned that using fixed income in a retirement perspective. The whole idea of a glide path in and of itself where a younger investor who's trying to accumulate assets is in a more risky position and they de-risk their portfolio into fixed income over time is very much designed to manage sequence risk. That if, as you get towards retirement by being predominantly in fixed income, you reduce the likelihood of nominal drawdowns. Now, it doesn't mean you're reducing the likelihood of real drawdowns after inflation, but that's a whole another subject. We did a really interesting study here a little while ago where we looked at the 4% rule. And the 4% rule is a very popular rule among financial planners where it says investors at the point of retirement can live off 4% of their portfolio with withdrawals and inflation adjust it over time. And historically, it's been a very, very safe rule. What's really interesting is if you go back historically and use that rule on U.S. equity market and U.S. bond market returns, it didn't matter what your portfolio was at the point of retirement. You could be a 2080 stock bond mix or you could be an 80-20 stock bond mix. And so long as you stuck to that 4% rule, your likelihood of success was very strong historically. And so what that really meant was your risk profile that you had at the point of retirement was more than anything just a point of preference that no matter what you chose historically, as long as you stuck to that 4% rule, you were all set. Falling discount rates will do that. <laughs> yes. Well, falling discount rates and even more importantly, high starting yields will certainly really help. And that is the problem we face today is the low starting yields mean that if you have a very, very large allocation to fixed income in your portfolio and you plan on using 4% withdrawal rates adjusted for inflation, your probability of failure skyrockets. And so all of a sudden, risk preference is no longer arbitrary, that there's going to be a lot of investors who get to the point of retirement that are going to have to be uncomfortable in the amount of risk that they're taking, that they're going to have to allocate away from bonds and towards other asset classes that are offering a higher return and are also potentially higher risk. And they're going to have to do that in an effort to, to avoid the exact problem you, you spoke of, which is people are now living longer than ever. And so they have this longevity risk that they have to deal with. Trend following, again, is one of these ideas where instead of necessarily moving the portfolio along that glide path into fixed income, there may be an opportunity to move the, the portfolio into a trend following program as well as fixed income and perhaps low volatility equities and high quality equities and use these defensive style factors and systematic applications as different ways of trying to manage risk in the portfolio. 
but still tilting the portfolio towards sources of higher potential long-term return. And I think that's going to be critically important for how people think about managing their retirement portfolio going forward. Well, it's good to see that you're innovating in this area, and we look forward to more research and papers on the topic because it's something that in Australia in particular we need to explore uh, given that uh, our large, our very large superannuation system is uh, very close to a tipping point at which uh, more people will start withdrawing from their pensions than contributing. So we need innovation in this area and different post-retirement products and different ways to manage uh, risks such as longevity and uh, and trying to eke out returns in a an environment where yields are low and possibly rising. Uh, just want to move on now to some questions on uh, quantitative approaches. So we know that uh, a lot of people talk about the strengths of quantitative investing being that it's very much based on data, it's driven by rules, those rules help to promote consistency and uh, ensure that uh, portfolio doesn't run away with emotion. But what are some of the weaknesses of a quant approach? I think one of the things that can be said about a quant approach is really, if we're honest with ourselves, the difference between a quant approach and call it a discretionary approach is where are you embedding your bias? And what I mean by that is as a quantitative investor, I can talk all about these benefits of a systematic approach, eliminating emotion from my decisions, which I think is incredibly important on a go forward basis. But that doesn't mean that my bias and my beliefs are not embedded in the portfolio itself. So we all like to say we're evidence-based, but the reality is there's a large number of quantitative value investors out there who all build very, very different portfolios, that their unique spin on value is driven by their beliefs. Um, and those beliefs may be drawn from the data and the empirical evidence, but there's still beliefs at the end of the day as to how a portfolio should be managed. And so very often a systematic strategy has your biases embedded up front, and then those biases are going to remain consistent over time. And I think there's a big benefit to that if you can acknowledge what those biases are and you're aware of your own biases and you can communicate those to investors as to when you expect the portfolio to do well and what sort of environments you expect it to do poorly. A discretionary manager, on the other hand, has the opportunity to adjust their portfolio on the fly. And so that means that there is a risk of them embedding emotional biases along the way, but it also means that they can adjust their portfolio in a way, potentially instantaneously, to address prior biases that they, they no longer want to embed in the portfolio. And so I think in a certain way, you can think of it as quantitative is going to have these embedded upfront biases that we need to be aware of that are going to be consistent in the portfolio going forward, while a discretionary manager is going to have these ongoing emotional biases that we need to be aware of. Um, and I, and I, I do truly believe that when you look at some of the best qualitative managers out there, the best systematic, uh, excuse me, the best um, 
discretionary managers out there, they tend to be very process oriented. They tend to have almost a checklist that they utilize, but they're able to use that flexibility, that qualitative flexibility to recognize when that the bias created by the checklist might not be appropriate. Do you think that quant strategies uh, lose something from not being forward-looking or as forward-looking as, say, a discretionary investor might be? You know, the real way I think about the difference between quant and discretionary goes back to how you manage risk. I'm risk-obsessed. And when I think of a lot of quant strategies, the way they tend to manage risk is through diversification. So quant signals are designed to be, uh, for lack of a better word, somewhat stupid. That there needs to be information in the signal, but you have to stop at a level that isn't so fine-grained that you introduce overfitting. So what do I mean by that? Let's say you're building a value portfolio. The very popular value signal doesn't work nearly as well anymore uh, empirically, but price to book is sort of the traditional value signal. And so you look at all the stocks based on their price to book ratio, and you buy the ones that screen as being the cheapest. Well, price to book may be a much more effective ratio in some sectors than others. It may be not applicable for things like financials or for companies that have large intangible values in brand or technology that aren't getting picked up in the book value. And so regardless, the way a quant manages that risk is by building a large enough portfolio that we diversify that risk over a large number of securities. And most of the time, we don't even know what we own. A qualitative manager, on the other hand, is much more likely a discretionary manager is much more likely to manage risk in a qualitative manner, that they're going to look at each company and they might use some sort of screening system to filter these companies, but then they're going to do a qualitative overview and really try to understand the company and pick a group of securities that they think from a qualitative measure are less risky, that perhaps are trading at a deep discount to their intrinsic value going back to that traditional Benjamin Graham type investing mentality. And so for me, when I think of sort of quant versus qualitative, that is a big differentiator that it is the way we manage risk is ultimately what sort of divides us uh, in terms of how we think about building portfolios. So if I understand you correctly, uh, quants rely predominantly on diversification to manage risk, whereas discretionary managers try to find out more about what they own and what the risks of that company are to manage risk. That's where I would draw the line. That's the, if I were to really say, what do I think sort of the difference between quants and qualitative managers are, I think that is a, a clear dividing line between us. Okay. I'm, I'm interested in the example that you brought up of price to book because it leads very nicely onto another question. And that is, you mentioned that price to book is the traditional academic definition of value. I think it dates back to the early 90s when Fama and French published their paper. And it's got some nice attributes. It tends to be fairly stable, so it has low trading costs. And it's something that you can measure for most companies. But as you point out, 
it hasn't worked in a very long time and by some measures almost since they published that paper. When should quantitative investors change their model? You know, what At what point do you look at something that has worked, that has stopped working and then think, well, I don't know, what do I do now? This is one of those very, very difficult to answer questions because conceptually, it's just a statistics problem. The problem, however, is that a lot of these factors that we talk about have so much data associated with them that even if we sort of take a, a Bayesian approach and update our priors with new information, it would really require decades and decades of information uh, to make us believe that these factors are no longer statistically significant. And so there is, as much as a quant doesn't want to admit, there is a large faith-based element in what we do, that we have used statistical techniques to identify these factors that we think exist. We try to test for robustness by determining whether the factors are an anomaly only in U.S. markets or whether they exist in other markets. Can you apply the same concept in different asset classes, perhaps? Can you apply it in different geographies? Does it work is it robust over the full history of these different asset classes and geographies? And that's all really important information, but what it does ultimately mean is once we do find one of these, and especially if we can tie it into a fundamental reason why we think it exists and why we think it'll continue to persist, whether it's a behavioral anomaly or a risk premium that we're earning, it requires typically much longer than an investor's lifetime to disprove. And I think the small cap premium, the size premium is a perfect example of another exposure that at the date of publishing was determined to be statistically significant. And now we might have sort of started to turn the page and, and say, well, maybe that is not an excess return that we're earning. Maybe it is a risk factor. Small cap stocks do behave differently than large cap stocks, but you might not earn a premium from holding them. And it took 30 plus years to get there. And unfortunately for investors today, it's not going to be looking at their value portfolio two years from now and saying, oh, that didn't work. I should give up on it. If they're going to take one of these approaches, the unfortunate truth is it needs to be an allocation and they need to stick with it. And unfortunately, they're not going to know until they're done investing whether it worked or not. And I think what makes it even harder is that the anomaly may exist and it can still underperform for decades at a time. But if something is a risk premium, that if you're earning a, a return, an excess return for insuring someone else's risk, and that risk materializes an abnormal number of times, you're going to end up ultimately underperforming. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that anomaly doesn't exist, that that premium doesn't exist. It just means you happen to live through a period that you weren't appropriately paid for it, perhaps underestimated the magnitude or there were some surprise shocks. So it is, from a philosophical perspective, a very frustrating question because there's no sort of, there is the simple statistical test you can use to determine whether something is still robust. But unfortunately for most of us, 
we won't know until long after our careers are over whether we were right or wrong. And I think that creates some interesting governance issues, particularly in an institutional context, because uh, picking fund managers, you have the luxury of sacking them to hire another fund manager. So if your small cap value manager does poorly, you can blame his picks and pick another small cap value manager. And if that doesn't work, you can sack your consultant. But in terms of using factors and more and more uh, institutional investors are thinking along those lines, who do you sack if value doesn't work for 10 years? Or if your measure of value uh, turns out to have not been the best. And I think people's governance arrangements haven't caught up to those sorts of issues. They haven't evolved to a point that allows them to use these uh, strategies. And as you point out, they need to be genuinely long-term in the way they think about it. Um, but I don't think they're there yet. Well, you bring up a really important point, which is not just has value stopped working, but has my particular flavor or implementation of, of how I think about value stopped working. My co-portfolio manager, Justin Cybers, wrote a really fascinating piece lately where he explored the momentum anomaly. And momentum is one of these anomalies that is incredibly persistent, but there's many, many different ways in which people try to measure momentum. So momentum at its core simply says securities that have recently been outperforming their peers tend to keep outperforming, and those that are underperforming tend to keep underperforming. But the ways in which you can think about um, measuring momentum, building a portfolio, whether you're going to be sector neutral or not in your selection and weighting, um, all those sort of concepts can lead multiple managers who are trying to tap into the momentum anomaly to ultimately construct very different portfolios. And so what he did in this exercise was he looked at over a thousand different sort of simulated portfolios that are all trying to tap into the momentum anomaly, different lookbacks, different rebalance periods, et cetera, et cetera, and found that the dispersion in returns between those portfolios was very often much larger than the dispersion of returns you would see between different factors. In other words, Daniel, you and I might both run momentum portfolios, and the dispersion in our returns over a given year, despite the fact we're both trying to tap into momentum, could be larger and very frequently is larger than the dispersion of returns between us and someone who's running a value portfolio, which is entirely different. And which is, as you can imagine, incredibly frustrating because it what it creates is not only this question of did I pick the right factor, but did I pick the right implementation? And I think my view has always been when it comes to these things, if you don't have a crystal ball and you don't have a reason to believe that a particular implementation is better than another, you're better off diversifying among multiple implementations. And that's, that reminds me of an interesting debate that we've seen take place on Twitter at the moment between uh, using a single factor or a composite factor. Uh, I, I tend to lean a little bit more your way that a composite works better. And uh, anecdotally, uh, I've proved that out in portfolios that I managed where 
using a value composite led to much better results than uh, than using a single value factor. Um, and I was even surprised that during a period where the single value factor would have done quite well, uh, given that it was uh, low price to book and tended to uh, result in portfolios that were you know, quite risky and it was a period where risk was being rewarded, the composite more than kept up during that period. And I was surprised by that. I tend to take sort of a philosophical view of this debate, which is let's pretend for a moment there is some truth out there that if you had a crystal ball, you could tell which companies are undervalued and which are not, and therefore which ones you should buy uh, or potentially which ones are expensive and you should short. The problem is we don't have a crystal ball, and so we end up using all these different ways of trying to suss out value. We might use price to book, we might use enterprise value to EBITDA, we might use price to earnings, price to sales, price to free cash flow. There's a variety of ways in which we can do this. And to me, each of those almost looks through a different lens. They're trying to capture value in a subtly different way. And if they are all somewhat uncorrelated, then we would expect that by combining them together, by looking through multiple different lenses at trying to see the truth, we'd be able to diversify out a lot of their idiosyncratic process risk and that the failures of, of PE or the shortcomings of, of price to book would somewhat negate each other and we'd be able to hopefully better triangulate on the truth. And it's at least been my experience that very often when you look at building simple systems, that when you incorporate multiple uncorrelated systems together, there is a lift in the sharp ratio that is that diversification benefit, the same way that you see when you combine stocks and bonds together, you get that lift in, in the sharp ratio. The drawback very often is that looking in a rear view mirror, pretty frequently diversification tends to disappoint. That said, you know, if you're going to use a composite, you're probably always going to underperform the best individual factor, though you just mentioned, you know, there were periods where that isn't the case. And, and certainly you can get some rebalance benefit and sometimes multiple factors can lead you to a, a better truth, uh, a better clarity of, of the value picture or whatever factor you're looking at. But ultimately, I look at it as without a crystal ball, we don't know which of these approaches is going to be a better indicator of value or whatever factor it is going forward. We think they all have some forecasting power. Why wouldn't we want to incorporate multiple? That seems perfectly sensible. So moving on to another question related to all things quant, one of my eternal frustrations as an Australian-based investor, and I know investors in Canada and in Scandinavian countries share similar frustrations. And the frustration is this. We tend to operate in a very concentrated market. So our top 10 stocks make up uh, just over 60% of the index. Uh, financials, around about 30% of the index. And these concentration issues tend to have some pretty big impacts on the way factors work. Um, some factors don't seem to work at all. 
Uh, for example, value is a factor that unless you're doing something that's very um, stock specific or special situations oriented or very deep value where you're, you're uh, playing in certain opportunities, running a, a statistically oriented value approach in Australia is quite difficult to do. Uh, and you see that in the fact that virtually all active managers in Australia tend to have uh, core to quality or growth bias. And so it gets a little bit frustrating for somebody in Australia to look at all of this research because so much of it doesn't apply or work here. And so I'm interested to know if you've looked at uh, things like the sector rotation strategies that you run in more concentrated markets and whether or not they still work. So I haven't looked at them in more concentrated markets, so you, you do see periods of time in the U.S. where we have had for limited periods, more concentrated markets. So call it the dot-com days or right pre-crisis when financials ballooned out to be a very healthy part of our large cap market. I think one of the frustrating aspects here um, with these types of strategies when you are in a concentrated market is very often you can end up taking what I would call an unintended bet or that a single bet ends up dominating your entire portfolio compared to your benchmark. So you mentioned, for example, in the Australian market, it's dominated by financials companies. Well, if your model isn't very well tuned to financials companies, or if you end up taking a very large bet against financials for some reason, it doesn't really matter what your bets are in other sectors. Your portfolio performance is going to be absolutely dominated by your relative sector exposure to financials. If you happen to make the right sector call in financials relative to the overall portfolio, just your over or underweight that sector, it's gonna be a lot more meaningful than if you have a much smaller sector. And we see that uh, very much here in the US with a lot of our sector-based trend following programs where a sector like utilities we tend to be consistently overweight. A sector like technology, we tend to be consistently underweight because we like to take an equal sector approach. And we do that in effort to control model risk, but it introduces in controlling model risk a whole bunch of tracking error risk, right? So that idea of risk can't be destroyed, only transformed, we're able to address model risk by introducing tracking error risk. And for some people that can be incredibly frustrating uh, for others, they understand, but I think what's always critical when you work in a very concentrated market that's dominated by a single factor, recognizing whether meaningfully deviating from that factor is necessary and whether that's the bet you intend to make, that by buying value stocks, are you trying to identify value or is your value portfolio perhaps dominated by a single sector bet. And I think that often goes unnoticed in portfolio construction. People focus so much on what's my signal? Do I have the special sauce? Should I use price to book or enterprise value to EBITDA? When in reality, there's all this other stuff. Um, the, the hokey analogy I use is that portfolio construction is a lot like cooking. There's ingredients in a recipe. And we're an industry that's obsessed with the ingredients. We want to have the best sugar and the best salt. The reality is the recipe is just as important. That You can have the best Himalayan pink sea salt in the world, but if you are making cookies and you use a cup of salt and a pinch of sugar, those are not going to be good cookies. 
And we often ignore that second piece. And I think particularly in markets that are dominated by a single risk factor or very concentrated markets, when you're implementing your portfolio, recognizing those unintended bets through the portfolio construction is incredibly critical. That's a, a really important observation. It's it's not necessarily whether or not you take the bet, but whether or not it's intentional that matters and, and whether you have your expectations set accordingly. That's uh well and, and and I think just to add to that is whether you think it's a compensated bet. So the idea of am I taking a bet that I think is going to earn me a reward or am I taking a bet that I don't actually expect to earn me any reward and it's just going to add volatility to my portfolio? And thinking along those lines as to, again, if I'm picking a value portfolio and I'm avoiding financials consistently, do I expect to be over the long run uh, earning a premium for avoiding financials consistently in Australia? Probably not. And so all you're doing is introducing more tracking error and noise to the portfolio. And those are things that need to be addressed in portfolio construction. So moving on to another question about quant strategies, and I've I've heard a few people talking about this. You know, they've made different observations, such as there are now more factors than there are stocks, or more smart beta strategies than there are stocks in the world. Is this just all becoming too crowded, too commoditized, or arbed away? I'm going to give a cop-out answer and say both yes and no. I think when it comes to the factors, you know, this idea of there's more, there's more factors than stocks or there's more smart beta indices than stocks, the reality is that's like saying there's more recipes than ingredients. It may be true, but it doesn't make the recipes any less valid. I do think when it comes to the big published factor zoo of, of quant researchers, academics, and practitioners, a lot of the published factors are probably not as statistically significant as they appear. And my guess is the vast majority of them are actually really just subtly different flavors of the same underlying concept. And there really aren't 500. I think most practitioners and researchers agree that the pantheon of factors really is only four or five. And it's the ones I mentioned before, value, momentum, carry, defensive, and that sort of, again, low vol and quality, and trend. And very often, these individual published factors are just a different cut at those same overarching philosophies. So from that approach, I would say maybe they're not going to be arbed away. That said, I do think what we run the risk of doing is by making them more and more easily accessible and published, the edges that may have been used before disappearing. So when I like to think about edges, there's sort of three categories I think about. There's the informational edge, which is you have better information than other market participants. Perhaps you have a unique information source. And that information edge allows you to price securities more accurately than the rest of the market. And so you can uh, more accurately forecast and take advantage of that. There's then the analytical edge, which is everyone has the same information, but you're able to process that information more accurately. You've got a better model. Everyone's using price to book, but you're using enterprise value to EBITDA, which perhaps is a better way of capturing value. 
And then there's the final edge, which is what I would call an emotional edge, which is everyone's got the same information. Everyone's just as sophisticated. We're all in this quant arms race, arms race. And really the only way to outperform in the long run is to just be more stubborn. That ultimately alpha is a zero sum game and that they're going to need to be weak hands that fold to pass that alpha to the strong hands with the fortitude to hold. And I think more and more as we publish these factors and people adopt a systematic approach and employ smart beta, the first two edges are disappearing and it truly is becoming more and more an emotional edge about who has the fortitude to overcome the behavior gap and stick with value through the troughs of sorrow to ultimately be there when it turns around and benefit from from the rally that'll occur when value investing takes off again. It's it's almost ironic because the the commoditization of factors, as you rightly point out, it probably has diminished the first two edges, but it's probably also brought in a lot more weak hands that's boosted the, the third edge, the behavioral one. It is interesting because you also have this phenomenon of people just throwing in the towel and, and using things like Vanguard. And so I think in those cases, you may have some weak hands leaving, but you do tend to see this pers persistent uh, chase of performance that people tend to use that three-year time horizon to evaluate their managers. They think that 36 months is somehow statistically significant in measuring alpha when in reality it's not. But they use that as a way to swap managers, review managers. And in reality, what we see, and perhaps this is almost self-inflicted, is that is the horizon in which returns tend to mean revert. And so you'd be much better off buying underperforming managers and selling your outperforming managers every three years than you are selling your underperforming and, and loading up into the outperforming. But I, I've taken to calling this phenomenon, this idea of this emotional arbitrage this emotional edge, what I, what I call the frustrating law of active management, which is a bit of a play on, on Bill Sharp's law of active management, which, as I mentioned, simply says that alpha is a zero-sum game. And with that in mind, what the frustrating law of active management that I like to talk about simply says is if there's a well-known and published anomaly, for it to continue to work over the long run, it's going to have to be hard to stick with. Because if I said to you, I have an investment approach that is going to outperform the market guaranteed, so guaranteed it's a government guarantee, you'd give me all your money. And people would give me all their money. And all that money would mean that that edge would ultimately disappear because as I try to buy the securities that my system is picking, I'm driving the prices up, I'm overwhelming it with assets, and the edge would ultimately be fleeting. And so you can't have this holy grail strategy that's well known and published because if it existed, if it were easy, everyone would do it. And so what's very frustrating about being an active manager is this idea that you have to go through periods of underperformance. For, for your methodology to work over the long run, it has to suffer enough that we can ultimately fold and you're able to capture the alpha from them. Conversely, what I think makes it even more frustrating is it means that strategies that shouldn't work, 
you know, someone who's buying consistently overpriced expensive stocks are going to have to have their day in the sun. Because if those strategies always underperform, then they're strategies that you could simply short and you'd have a strategy that always outperforms. So what you end up with are these very frustrating periods, multi-year periods where approaches that should work and have been demonstrated to work over centuries of evidence go through just really gut-wrenching relative drawdowns and are just really tough to stick with. And you see another manager who is just employing an approach that you know is not evidence-based, that you know the evidence suggests should underperform in the long run, doing really well. And it's an incredibly frustrating experience. So that's why I call it the, the frustrating law of active management. And it, to me, it is a grounding truth that we all have to accept that if you're going to employ an active approach, you need to prepare for just long-term frustration. Absolutely. And uh, the whole idea of mean reversion is built on that. The idea that, uh, and, and we discussed this uh, in an earlier podcast with Jason Zweig, uh, who mentioned that uh, Benjamin Graham's book, The Intelligent Investor, began with a quote from Horace. I uh, forget exactly how the quote was put, but it was uh, very much about those that are currently in honor will, will no longer be, and those that are currently in shame will be raised up. And it's this, uh, this idea of, of mean reversion um, is, is such a powerful force in investing, and particularly with active strategies, because as you say, it, it, it can't work forever if everybody gets on it. Well, and you know, when you tie these two philosophies together of risk can't be destroyed, it can only be transformed, and the frustrating law of active management, it makes a lot of conversations sort of go away. So as an example, um, you know, does value investing work? Well, I think it works, but along the way, it's going to be pretty frustrating. Well, if it's going to be frustrating, can't I just time factors? You know, can we come up with something that'll tell me when to be in and out of value? Well, maybe, but it's going to just be compounding frustrating. And so in, in that sense, a lot of these conversations that people tend to waste a lot of brain power on as to whether something can or cannot work to me, just goes back to a framework of, well, there might be an answer. You might be able to do it, but it's not going to work consistently, and it's probably going to be frustrating along the way. And so for a lot of investors, what I typically just recommend is, is save the brain damage. Don't try to outsmart the market. Take a few approaches that you can really deeply understand and have faith in and believe in and diversify because they're all going to go through periods of relative underperformance and they're all going to go through periods of relative outperformance. And if you can diversify, then, then hopefully you're mitigating that idiosyncratic risk. I should mention though that diversification in and of itself is not a panacea either. Because if I were to come to you with a black box of, of a diversified factor portfolio, for the same reasons that a single factor portfolio can't always outperform, a diversified factor portfolio can't always outperform. That diversification, you're going to have periods where all the factors underperform at the same time. It's just, again, it goes back to that acknowledgement that for these things to work over the long run, it has to be sufficiently difficult in the short run that we can't fold. And that is just an eternally frustrating aspect of being an asset manager. So maybe the implication of that is that rather than trying to find the answers, we should be spending more time 
trying to strengthen our hand basically by setting appropriate expectations and trying to uh, improve our behavior and the way we make decisions. Maybe that's the answer. Absolutely. I always like to say no pain, no premium. And I think our friend Wes Gray at Alpha Architect is an absolute wizard at this. And he he's understood this for a long time that sustainable alpha, as he calls it, really requires not only a sustainable long-term empirical strategy, but it requires a sustainable investor. And it doesn't matter how good the strategy is. If the investor can't stick with the strategy, they'll never be around to capture that alpha. And so he spends a really significant amount of time, if you ever listen to him speak on a podcast or present or even in his um, articles that he writes for his website and publishes on his commentary, he spends a lot of time overemphasizing how painful it's going to be to be a value investor with the notion that it may take some people out out of the equation that they might say self-select away from his approach and simply say, you want to, I want a more confident manager, but the ones who ultimately do allocate to him are going in with eyes wide open, acknowledging that this needs to be an allocation in their portfolio, not a trade. I, I think that's a much better business model to be upfront with people. And I think that's uh, more broadly the way, I think it's the future for investing. I think the the days of, of trust me, I'm rich, it's worked for me, it can work for you um, sort of pitches have faded. I think people want the transparency and they want to be educated and they want to be helped to form reasonable expectations and know why they're buying what they're buying and what it's supposed to do and when it might not work. I think people want all of these things and as you say, Wes is a great example of somebody doing that. But I think above all, above all, individual investors just want a comfort that they're on their financial plan. Again, I, I stress that we're an industry obsessed with alpha. And the reality is for most individual investors, alpha is not truly part of their financial planning equation. And so we, we spend all this brain power looking for alpha, selling alpha, talking about alpha, when in reality, the conversation I think most advisors have with their clients should be quite simply, are we on plan? Are we on track? How can I save more? How can I be more tax efficient? How can we minimize transaction costs? And then think about, you know, as you sort of get that low hanging fruit out of the way, then think about, okay, are there approaches I can employ to help give me better odds of success? Can I use something like trend following Am I educated enough about it? Will I be a sustainable investor that I think I can include it in my portfolio with stocks and bonds to give me a long-term edge in my, my success? That's uh, really some really thoughtful advice. So moving on to a devil's advocate question, I'm going to throw the spanner in the in the works, or as the Americans might say, the wrench in the works, uh, and ask you a question about fundamental or discretionary investment strategies would you ever invest in one if not why not if so how would you choose one yes i would i think there are areas of the market that are incredibly difficult for a purely systematic approach one example might be a special situations fund where 
the degrees of freedom that you ultimately have, not only in identifying a special situation, but trying to play that special situation is really, I think, somewhat beyond the hopes of a pre-programmed systematic system. So you might be able to use, just by way of example, a deep value screen to identify special situations, call it merger arbitrage or something like that, that you think have a higher probability of success. But I think where each of those each of those um, situations is by definition unique, where by definition is idiosyncratic in nature, I think a qualitative oversight can have a tremendous amount of value in a way that qualitative oversight might not have as much value in just a broadly diversified you know, value security or momentum stock portfolio. So I think there are certain strategies in which the human touch is somewhat necessary because there's just too many degrees of freedom for a computer to select from. So long, long answer short, yes, I would invest in a discretionary manager, but I think it has to be the right type of strategy that I'm convinced cannot be quantified. That's you, you touch on some interesting points there. And I agree that what, we need as investors is a framework and it's something that I've I've written about and I'm still doing a lot of work on because there's it's not an either or question like many things in investing the true answer is it all depends and what we need is to be able to have a framework to think about well what are the areas where a quantitative approach is likely to be superior and what are the areas where it might face some limitations or some headwinds and other approaches might be superior. And I think if we can get to um, to using a framework like that, we can achieve uh, better outcomes because we're using the right tool for the job. Absolutely. Again, I, I don't think we're in a place where we can say computers are, are smarter than humans. I mean, we have incredibly evolved pattern recognition machines right in our skull. And that said, they tend to be incredibly susceptible to emotional bias. So if we can create a, a bionic human, if we can utilize the machine and sort of take this quantum mental approach in some cases where we truly do believe that human interpretation and human influence can be beneficial, uh, and again, I think special situations is a perfect example of that where there's so many different ways to play these situations that come about, not just in what the trade is, but how you want to implement the trade, whether it's through options, whether it's through buying different areas of the credit structure. All of those things are degrees of freedom with which programming a system up front would be incredibly difficult to do. So. I think it, again, comes back to recognizing the strengths and weaknesses, both of a quant approach, which has those pre-embedded biases, and a human approach, which tends to have ongoing biases, and recognizing which of those risks is appropriate to take in, in each circumstance. Very true. You, you remind me of uh, the work of Simon Russell here in Australia. He recently published a book called Cyborg, and he... Uh, to personify what he was talking about, he used two models, the Terminator model, or the pure quant, and the Iron Man model, 
which is very much the using technology to improve what humans can do. And he talks about the two models and, and uh, how fund managers uh, might decide whether or not they want to be a Terminator or Iron Man. Personally, I think Tony Stark's more fun, but to each his own. Certainly a lot more friendly. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> I just want to touch very briefly on a couple of my favorite pieces of Think Newfound Research that you and your colleagues have written. There's three that come immediately to mind, and they are the, the excellent work on the anatomy of a bull market. That was a fantastic paper. The third one, and I've used some charts from, sorry, the second one, I should say, uh, that comes to mind is visualizing the anxiety of active strategies. And I've used charts from this paper in several presentations. It's, it's really, really good. And the third one is one that I enjoyed because it's quite different and refreshing to what many asset managers uh, put out there about themselves. And I was very interested and pleased to read it. And that is a philosophy first asset manager. So uh, interested to hear your thoughts and a bit of the background behind those three papers. Sure, absolutely. And all credit to my co-PM for the first paper, Anatomy of a Bull Market. Justin Cybers was the author of that piece. And the catalyst for that piece was really just going back to trying to take an evidence-based view on where do returns come from. So we're in what's very frequently been called the most hated bull market ever. But trying to understand when you look at market returns over a bullish period or a bearish period, a bull market, bear market, however you divvy up the market, did those returns come from true earnings growth? Were those returns due simply to the dividend yield that you earned? Was it due to inflation? Or was it simply a fluctuation in what the market was willing to pay, a valuation change? And what was very, very interesting to us and in, in the results that Justin found was seeing that each of these bull markets is pretty unique. The, the underlying reason that you see growth in these different bull markets over the last, and this was a study done in the U.S. over the last 100 years, approximately 100 years, there are some markets that are completely dominated by dividend yields, and there are some markets that are completely dominated by inflation. More recently, we've been pretty dominated by valuation changes, but what's really interesting is people might look at those valuation changes and say, oh, that's not sustainable. But a lot of the valuation changes we saw in this prior bull market that I think have represented almost a, a quarter, if not more, of the underlying price return has simply just been undoing the, the valuation damage that we saw in the prior bear market. And so I think, again, it goes back to just trying to be a bit more educated about why we're generating the returns we're generating. The follow-up piece he did to that, I think, was just as equally powerful and was a much shorter piece, but it looked at over different rolling periods, one-year, 10-year, 30-year periods, I believe, what were the driving factors? And what you see is that over the, the short run, it, the market is predominantly driven by valuation changes. 
whether the market's simply willing to pay more or less for the same security with the same fundamentals. When you go to longer periods, 20, 30 year periods, that valuation piece becomes almost meaningless. And your returns are almost entirely driven by dividend yield earnings growth and inflation, which I think is a very powerful dynamic to communicate for investors, which is the market in the short run is a voting machine and the market in the long run is a weighing machine. And if you check the market frequently, you're going to be driven mad by these price fluctuations that are simply the manic depressive attitudes of your marginal buyer and seller versus if you are think of investing as I am buying the underlying fundamentals of a basket of securities, I'm buying the entire U.S. large cap cohort or I'm buying the entire Australian market and I am earning from that the entire earnings growth and dividend yield and the growth of those companies over the next 30 years, that's a powerful way to reframe your thinking about investing and I think can help investors stay course over the long run. So that to me was a really, really powerful piece that he put together and, and um, actually ended up being published in Morningstar magazine because it was such a great piece. And deservedly so. I think the second one you mentioned was was visualizing the anxiety of active strategies. And that was actually, to quickly go into that, a, an idea I stole from Longboard Asset Management, who illustrated sort of uh, visually this concept of prospect theory. One of the behavioral biases that we tend to exhibit is that we feel the pain of loss approximately twice as much as the pleasure of gain. And so I think what they had done originally is they had shown the market, the U.S. equity market, and what it looked like if you actually doubled up every loss uh, to sort of get the emotional visualization. So I took that same concept and I applied it to small cap, the small cap premium. I applied it to the value premium. I applied it to the momentum factor. I applied it to, I think, quality and, and low beta as well. And the broad takeaway was not only did I look at applying this prospect theory, but the prospect theory was applied based on the frequency with which you looked at your portfolio. And there's this idea that the more frequently you look at your portfolio, the riskier you think the portfolio is and the more painful that you think the portfolio is. The, the real intuition there is if the market on a daily basis is, whether it's up or down, it's basically a coin flip. There's about a 51% chance that it's up or down. If you check the market daily, it's going to feel very risky. But that slight edge, that 51% compounds. And if you only check the market on an annual basis, well, you'll see the market's up about 70% of the time. And so someone who looks at the market daily and feels every loss twice as much as the pleasure of gain is going to just have an emotional roller coaster by checking their account daily. And, the, and it holds true for all these active strategies as well if they're comparing their relative performance to the market. But if they check much less frequently, call it annually on an annual review, they're going to be a much more sustainable investor because they're not going to go through the same emotional turmoil. One of the things I found uh, with that paper was just how surprised people were 
when you showed them that any performance evaluation period less than one year was highly likely to be damaging to their long-term returns. Uh, m most people I've shown that to found that highly counterintuitive at first, particularly particularly in an institutional context. And the reason why they find it counterintuitive is because in, in a pension fund, for example, you have regulators and other external parties that require you to report on things. And so uh, the pushback I got when I showed people this result was, but, but we simply can't ignore it for a year because uh, it, it, we're going to get sued by the regulator, basically, because we haven't looked at this on a daily basis. And yet the, the, the data is pretty clear that if you torture yourself by looking at it too frequently, it's going to lead to suboptimal returns. Absolutely. And, and to go back to what we were talking about earlier, in a certain sense, as, as someone who's hoping to exploit these factors and earn alpha over the long run, I do somewhat hope that people do torture themselves because if they're the weak hands that can't stick with it, then that is ultimately where the alpha comes from. But in terms of trying to educate investors and create, to steal again that word from Wes Gray, sustainable investors who can stick with these strategies and earn, earn the premium, I think being aware of this, that the frequency with which you check is going to color your emotional experience is very important. Definitely. So let's move on to a philosophy first asset manager. It was an important message you're trying to get across in this paper. This was a commentary I wrote to celebrate Newfound Research's ninth birthday, which was last August. We're coming up on our 10th birthday. And what I really wanted to express in this paper was, again, my somewhat my dismay in which the way the industry operates, which is very frequently an asset manager, their entire brand and identity is built around a product. So someone will identify themselves as a small cap value manager, or someone will identify themselves as a growth, large cap growth manager. And from a business standpoint, from an owner-operator standpoint of an asset management firm, that makes a tremendous amount of sense. Your success in sales is going to be a lot stronger if you are able to anchor people's perception of your brand with what the product is you're offering. And so when people think newfound, you want them to think trend following. But I think it does a large disservice to your credibility as a researcher, I think it does a large disservice to your ability to think empirically and change your mind with, with new research. Because ultimately what happens is if you run into conflicting evidence into the way you manage money, you have as a firm tied your brand so heavily to a given approach that you're really not able to unwind, that you have become anchored to your prior beliefs and you're going to discount that new information, even though it might be just as important and influential as everything you knew before. And so for me, at Newfound, what I've really tried to promote is more of a philosophy first mentality that for us, it's not about what products we offer. It's about what philosophies are important to us. A lot of those that we've, we've spoken about today, that 
concept of managing risk, that sequence risk is really important, that maybe alpha shouldn't be our first focus for most investors. All of those things, I think, remain core and important philosophies that active management is going to be painful along the way. All those things, communicating those over and over and over, doesn't necessarily tell you exactly how we implement a portfolio, which for us gives us the flexibility to, as we learn new information over time uh, and continue to do ongoing research, allows us to evolve our portfolios to constantly be our best thinking and not be tied to one specific approach. It's it's a great paper because it, it really highlights very clearly this tension between marketing, which, as you rightly point out, is so much simpler if you stick to message and you identify yourself as X, and investing, where you look at all of the great investors, and again, Benjamin Graham comes to mind, a very firm set of principles, a clear philosophy, whether it's margin of safety, Mr. Market, all of these great metaphors, you know, the market is a weighing machine versus a voting machine, all these great metaphors that really bring through a clear philosophy. And yet, as we were discussing with, uh, with Jason Zweig on an earlier podcast episode, if you look at all, I think there's six editions of security analysis, the, the benchmarks that he uses to value stocks change constantly. So what was the required right. hurdle rate in one edition is different to another edition. So the, the fundamentals are always the same. The implementation recognizes that things change, circumstances change, market conditions are different. And I think all the really good investors do that. But as you say in your article, there's just a tension between doing that and how you present yourself in order to win business. And it's refreshing to see somebody such as yourself uh, take a stand on that issue and hopefully more managers do. Well, thank you. I think it's an important issue. I will say where I wear a dual dual hat of being an investment manager as well as owning an asset management firm, I can tell you that being a good investment manager is very different than running a good asset management firm. And I, I think uh, for me and, and the team here at Newfound, it's very important to take this philosophy first approach and always put the investment management side ahead of what might be shortcuts that can grow the asset management firm. Because I think over the long run, it does an incredible disservice to the investors that have entrusted us with their money. I would I would agree. Uh, so moving on to a couple of new papers that have recently come out that have piqued my interest. Perhaps you could briefly tell us a little bit about leverage and trend following. And this one I really liked because one of the things I'm working on at the moment, I have a one-year-old son uh, named Leo. And I've been thinking about how do I create an investment strategy for Leo. And given that he's one year old today, and we can expect that with improvements to health and medicine, he may well live to be a hundred. He has a very long investment horizon. And given the edge that you get in the markets over time, that would probably mean that he should use some leverage. But obviously we have to manage risk along the way. So that got me thinking about combining leverage with trend following and then I read your paper which basically took all the words out of my mouth so I'm really interested in this paper and perhaps you can tell us a little bit more about it 
So this paper was actually inspired by some comments I received on Twitter. So I used to be uh, pretty anti-social media, but I have found Twitter to be a phenomenal tool for engaging in conversation. And so we've written a whole lot about trend following, and some of the questions I received from people were, you know, Corey, you write all about trend following and using it to manage sequence risk for retirees. Are there applications of trend following for people who are trying to accumulate? Can we use it as a way to apply leverage more thoughtfully? And I think it's a really interesting question, particularly today, because so many capital market forecasts are expecting lower returns for portfolios. So if you look at equity forecasts and particularly fixed income forecasts, they're a lot lower than when, where they have been historically, which for me means capital efficiency is that much more important, that if I can take a dollar that I want to invest and use leverage to turn it into a dollar fifty, and through that prudent amount of leverage invest in a diversified portfolio or a portfolio that helps me manage risk, that's going to be potentially really important for people going forward uh, in helping achieve their return objectives to help them either in the accumulation phase or the distribution phase of their life cycle. So this idea of exploring, well, if trend following really seems to work in cutting the left tails, and the left tails are perhaps the greatest area of risk when it comes to leverage, can these things work well together? And what we found was sort of expectedly, yes, what you tend to see again is trend following will do a great job at historically cutting off the left tail, those big, deep drawdowns, but you also give up the right tail. What you see with the application of leverage, though, is that while it cuts off the left and right tail, those medium, where, where you are in the middle of the distribution, gets a lot fatter because you're multiplying everything. In, in my example, I, was, I believe I was multiplying everything by two, so you had 100% leverage on top of what you were investing. So if you had a 5% return, you all of a sudden had a 10% return, or if it was a negative 5% return of the underlying market, well, now you were negative 10%. And so what you saw was that um, you did indeed, over the long run, accumulate at a faster rate. You were able to cut out still a lot of those big, significant left-tail drawdowns. Uh, the improved sharp ratio was there, which uh, you always want to see. But when you took a levered approach, it wasn't necessarily that your nominal drawdown was going to be all that much lower. There were certainly periods where you still exhibited some pretty deep drawdowns, but it did allow you hopefully to avoid those sort of 2008s. I should point out, though, again, going back to this concept of risk can't be destroyed, only transformed, this isn't a riskless trade. So, again, thinking about leverage and the use of margin the amount of drawdown that you can ultimately suffer before going bust and using leverage is much less than if you're just holding the underlying security. And so you're much, much more susceptible to immediate and sudden drawdowns. And you're much, much more susceptible to periods of consistent whipsaw than you would be if you were just holding the underlying security or you were applying trend following in an unlevered fashion. So I think it can be a part of an investor's accumulation plan. I'd be hesitant, as always, to ever recommend anything as 100% of their plan. But I do think you can use trend following as a way, potentially, going forward 
where returns are forecasted to be so low to introduce some leverage in a prudent manner. You're definitely correct in pointing out some of the risks. Uh, some of the others that I was thinking a little bit more about is that obviously uh, the individual parts of the strategy, such as the spread over interest rates at which you're borrowing or the dividend yield and the ability of that dividend yield to cover the spread are quite dynamic. And so there's times where the maths of this strategy of, of borrowing just don't work. So that's something that definitely has to be factored into account. The reason that I found it interesting is I sort of got there a little bit more intuitively in the sense that there's a great paper on Warren Buffett's alpha that the team at AQR wrote a few years ago. And one of the outcomes of that paper is that Buffett wins by buying low-risk companies and gearing them up. And in Buffett's case, he has the world's best source of gearing, and that's insurance float. So you've collected premiums from thousands, possibly millions of different motorists and other catastrophe risks across America and the world, it's highly unlikely that that source of funding will all get called at once. Um, but in my case, I don't have float, and that's why the idea of using trend following to buy, um, sort of to manage the risk of gearing on some low-risk companies, I thought uh, was an interesting thing to do some more research on. I, I will point out, and, and you make a great point about the potential benefits of gearing and leverage, but I will point out once again that this can be a huge emotional burden as well. So in the paper I wrote, I looked at this approach from, again, in U.S. markets from 1920s through the present day. And of course, when you look over a 100-year horizon and you plot log returns, plot anything over a long horizon and log returns with a fat enough crayon, and it looks like a very easy strategy to, to hold. The reality is there were periods in that strategy where the underlying market may have gone 10 years without returning anything. It might have just been a sideways market. I think uh, if I recall correctly, there was like a five-year period, for example, in the late 1930s, early 1940s, where the trend-following strategy was down 40%. And so people can look at these long-term graphs and say, wow, that's a really attractive approach. Look how much you would have outperformed the market. But the reality is none of us have a 100-year life cycle individually. Perhaps there's some endowments that have the capacity to think out that far, but I'd argue too much career risk for them to ultimately think out that far. And so you're going to end up in this situation where you're more than likely going to have a three- or five-year period where you underperform the market by you know, 30, 40%. And are you going to have the fortitude to stick with the approach over the next 20 years or 10 years or 15 years, whatever you have left, uh, with the idea that you'll eventually make that up? So again, it can be incredibly painful and leverage can make that pain even worse unless you truly understand the strategy and you almost have a blind faith to allocating towards it in your portfolio. Thanks for the warning. <laughs> fortunately, fortunately, your son is only one, so hopefully he's not checking his portfolio yet. No, no, he's uh, he's more interested in Thomas the Tank Engine at the moment. As he should be. 
Very good. We won't keep you for too much longer. I just want to ask you a couple of quick questions. What are some of the interesting things that you're working on now? And where do you recommend that people look if they want to find out uh, what's happening in quantitative research? Where can they catch up with the latest developments? So on, on the second front, which I'll answer first, we've mentioned it a, a couple times now, but I think Twitter is an unbelievable resource, a much better resource than I ever thought it could be. There's whether people just get on Twitter and follow you, Daniel, and use that as a foray and an introduction to see who you're interacting with, and that can grow their network. You see all sorts of published research um, and people talking about other people's research. So a new article might come out from AQR, and it might spur a discussion that can last days, and you find yourself interacting with people like Cliff Asness, uh, who otherwise might be unapproachable for you to have an interaction with. And so it's just really a phenomenal medium for those who stay engaged in this space to not only to get introduced to papers that might be coming out, but have a discussion with people in a very thoughtful and respectful way. So I think Twitter is a, is a great one. As far as what I'm working on now, a lot of what we're continuing to work on are these ideas of sequence risk, education around sequence risk, thinking about other aspects of um, introducing trend following into other decisions. So we've written recently about, for example, lump sum investing versus dollar cost averaging. The commentary that I'm working on uh, that I'll be publishing shortly is trying to ask, can you use trend signals to help give you an edge as to whether you should, if you win a million dollars, invest it immediately, or whether you should dollar cost average it over the next couple of weeks, months, year, or what have you, and, and are there signals you can employ to help you make that decision? So again, it goes back not just to concepts that necessarily help us manage our portfolios, but these overarching questions of how are a lot of these signals applicable in the broader financial planning uh, landscape. That all sounds very interesting. We look forward to reading more about it on your uh, blog, Think Newfound, where you publish uh, all of the great research written by yourself and your team. Thank you, Corey, for joining us today on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure talking to you about all things quant. And we've covered some very interesting topics, and it, it's it's been great to chat with you. Thank you for having me, Daniel. It's been a fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Corey. Thank you for listening to the i3 Insights podcast. For more information, please visit our website at www i3-invest.com Thank you.